0: Well, good morning. Sure appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here. Michael and I have known, I guess, each other for uh, about 20 years or so. Michael and I go back to when he was pastoring in Virginia. Our friendship started there, so it's a great honor to pinch hit for him. Before we get started, I just want to give a shout-out. I've got a lot of family members here. My wife, uh, Cindy, is here. My mom, Peggy, is here. My brother and his wife and son are here, my sister and uh, brother-in-law are here, and uh, so you would think I'm bringing my own amen corner uh, with me, but uh, they're tough critics, so uh, I'll hear about it over lunch. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking in Murfreesboro, and my sister was there, and so I introduced her as my older sister, and over lunch, I was severely reprimanded that I should not be introducing her as my older sister, and I made a point then that I would never introduce her as my older sister again. So, Deborah, I just said, you're my sister. That's all I said. So my my sister and brother-in-law actually are here in Franklin, and they're a part of becoming a part of your family. They've been hanging around here for several months. So if they cause you any trouble, you tell Michael to call, call me, and we'll take care of that, okay? But I'm uh, thrilled that they're here. But thank you for allowing me to... Uh, be here. Vance Havner was a southern preacher from North Carolina. He passed away in 1986, but Vance was known as a real straight shooter and he had a real quick wit about him. And Vance used to say something to this effect right here. He would say, So many Christians live such subnormal Christian lives so as to make the subnormal look normal and the normal look abnormal now what Vance was saying is this so many Christians live so far below their rights and privileges as delineated in the New Testament that we have come to expect that this low-level Christian living is just normal and expected and if there happens to be a Christian who actually lives out the rights and privileges that the New Testament delineates, then we want to label that Christian. That's a zealot. That's a fanatic. Taking this religion thing way too far. Now there are a lot of uh, applications of that we could make of what Vance called subnormal Christian living, but let me tell you just one. I was pastoring in Texas, and a lady in our community came to faith. And she came to me, and she said, Pastor Mo, give me the list. And I said, excuse me? She said, I'm serious about this Christian thing, so give me the list. I want to be a good Christian. I said, what list are you referring to? She said, you know the list, the cans and the cans. The do's and the don'ts. Give me the list of what I can do and what I can't do because I want to follow the list. And I said, Sherry, I really appreciate your heart. And I understand where you're coming from. But there's no list. I'm not going to give you a list. I said, but here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to come to a Bible study that I'm leading. And in that Bible study, you're going to learn about the Lord Jesus. And as you learn and grow in relationship with him, he's going to help you, and he's going to work all of these issues out in your life. Well, you know what? She did, and she did. She did get in that group. She did learn about the Lord Jesus, and he did work out all those issues. You see, Christianity is not about rules and regulations and requirements Christianity is about a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Now, I want to ask you just a, a real simple question. Be honest with yourself, not out loud, but let me just ask you. Is there even a twinge or a smidge or an inkling in you where you want to move toward a list? Give me the list, because if I got the list, then I can check things off and I know then I'm Okay. There even a smidge of that in you. Well, if there is, I got really good news for you. As I just said, that's not what the New Testament delineates. Christianity is not a list. Christianity is a relationship. And that's what we want to focus on this morning. What Vance Havner would call, what Watchman Nee would call, the normal Christian life. What is it, and how can we experience it? So I want you to uh, turn in your Bible, or if you're into tech, tap to your Bible, to the book of Ephesians, chapter number three. Now, as you're turning there, let me set the stage for you. Of course, Jesus has died, been raised from the dead, ascended back to heaven, and from the right hand of the Father, Jesus selects the Apostle Paul to be a missionary, an evangelist, a church planter. And so Paul travels the Roman Empire preaching the good news, the grace of our Lord Jesus. And so he came to a city known as Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. He preached the gospel. A church was established. Paul spent about three years in that city discipling people. But now fast forward just a bit. Paul is now in jail in Rome, and he hears about the church in Ephesus. So he writes a letter. Now, what was going on in Ephesus that encouraged Paul to write? Now, we can't say for certain, but there weren't any major, major issues going on in Ephesus. They didn't have doctrinal problems like the church at Colossae where Paul had to write Colossians and straighten them out. They didn't have total chaos like the Corinthian church where Paul had to write First and Second Corinthians to really straighten them out. But what was going on in Ephesus? Well, as we read the letter and as we read what Jesus said over in Revelation chapter 2, I know that was several years later, but we sort of get an inkling. Jesus wrote to the church at Ephesus years later and he said something to the effect of, listen, I know you're taking a stand for me. I know you're toiling. I know you're persevering. I know you're working hard and you're not growing weary. And I know you are not putting up with false teachers and false doctrine. I really appreciate that about you. He said, but I got this against you. You've left your first love. And as you read the book of Ephesians, you will see that Paul uses this word love over and over and over again. There may have been in the Ephesians church a tendency to move more into just routine rather than relationship. And so I think Paul is trying to straighten that out. So Paul actually is praying for the Ephesian Christians and he writes a letter to them and he tells them exactly what he's praying for them. So I want you to look beginning with verse 14 in Ephesians 3. He says... For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Okay, we got to pause right here. I promise you, I'm not going to do a lot of start and stopping, but we got to stop right here. Paul says, for this reason, I'm praying for you. Now, we got to ask ourselves, what's the reason? Why is Paul praying for them? Well, to answer that, I want you to go back to verse number one of chapter three. And Paul says in verse one, for this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if you indeed have heard of the stewardship of God's grace. You see, in verse 1, Paul starts for this reason. He starts his prayer in verse 1, but then he gets sidetracked. It's sort of a Holy Spirit-inspired rabbit trail. He gets sidetracked, and he says, now, before I tell you what I'm praying for you about, let me tell you about my ministry. So verses 2 through 13 is sort of a parenthesis where Paul is telling us about his ministry. So what was the reason that he started the prayer in verse 1? To get that, we've got to go back to verse 19 of chapter 2. He says... So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints or of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Now watch this. In whom you also are being built together in a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul says, Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, God has brought you together. And in the church, he is making you his dwelling place. God is coming to live in you. That's what he said in chapter 2. Then he goes to chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, For this reason, the reason that you are a temple of the Lord, you are a dwelling place of God, for this reason, I'm praying for you. You see, verse 14 of chapter 3 connects all the way back to chapter 2. For this reason, go back to verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. By the way, if you want to have a good study, look at verse 15. We won't do it today. Every family in heaven. Let that one sink in. That's a fun study. Every family in heaven and earth derives its name. Now, here's the prayer. I'm praying that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That is a mouthful. That's what Paul is praying for the Ephesians. If you wanna pray a prayer for you, if you wanna pray a prayer for someone else, just pray that prayer right there. Now, if we had a week, we would dissect the whole prayer. And it's a stair-step prayer. Paul says, I am praying that God would strengthen you in your inner man with power through his Holy Spirit so that Christ can dwell in your hearts through faith. And when Christ is dwelling in your hearts through faith, then you will be rooted and grounded in his love and you will have the ability to know the height and depth and length and width of God's love for you so that you can be filled to all the fullness of God. It's a stair-step prayer. We don't have time to go through it all. We're going to focus on verse 17, which is the Part of this prayer. Everything centers around verse 17. Paul says, I am praying that God would strengthen you with power in your spirit so that Christ can dwell in your hearts through faith. That's it right there. That's what we're going to focus on. That's the heart of this prayer. This is the normal Christian life. If you, anyone ever asks you, what's Christianity all about? You take them to Ephesians three seventeen. Christianity is Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. We're going to dissect this phrase right here, this verse. Now, i tell you what we're going to do you got to stay with me. I'm going to give you some explanations. Thank you. I'm going to give you some uh, explanations of these words. Excuse me, some definitions. We're going to define some words. And then I'm going to give you some application. Now, you got to stay with me. Because you're going to think I'm all over the place. But hang on. So we're going to go through this phrase. And I'm going to give you the definitions of these words. So hang with me. Paul says, I am praying that Christ will dwell in your hearts. Let's focus on the word your here. Who's he praying for? Your is a pronoun that stands for someone. Who is he praying for? You see, if we're not careful, we're going to think this is a prayer for lost people to get saved. Have you ever heard someone say, have you invited Jesus into your heart? Do you want Jesus to come live within you? We think it's maybe a prayer for lost people to get saved. No. If we were to go back to chapter 1, this is what Paul says. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the saints who are in Ephesus. He is praying for the saints. Saints is a word in the New Testament that refers to Christians. He's praying for Christians. And then he spends chapter 1 describing these Christians. I won't have you turn there, but let me just delineate what he says. In chapter 1, Paul says, You Christians are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place. You are adopted by your Father you are redeemed, you are forgiven, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Do you see who he's praying for? Saints who are blessed, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and sealed. File that away. This is a prayer, not for unsaved, but for saved people to possibly experience something. That's the next word we want to focus on. He says, I am praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. Notice that Christ may dwell. I want you to focus on the little word may here. The word may implies probability or possibility, not reality. Paul is not praying for what is. He is praying for what could be. Paul is praying for what possibly could be for example what would you think if I stood up here right now and I said to you I am praying right now for you here at Stonebridge right now listening to me I'm praying that God would strengthen you to sit down you would look at me and say Mo we're already sitting down that's a weird prayer Mo you see I don't pray for what is I pray for what could be. Now, it would make sense for me to pray. I pray, Lord, you would strengthen them so the people will stand up, so the people will walk out the door, so the people will jump up and down. I pray for what could be, but not what is. Do you see what's happening here? Paul is praying for Christians that are not experiencing something, but he wants them to. He's saying, I'm praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, put this together. This is incredible. Paul is saying to these Christians, these Ephesians, are you a saint? Super, but there's more, and I'm praying you'll get it. Are you blessed? Beautiful, but there's more, and I'm praying you'll get it. Are you redeemed? Wonderful, but there's more, and I'm praying you'll get it. Are you adopted? Awesome, but there's more, and I'm praying you'll get it. Are you forgiven? Fantastic, but there's more, and I'm praying you'll get it. Are you sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of your inheritance? Superb, but I'm praying that you will experience more. Do you see this? Paul is praying for saints who are blessed, adopted, redeemed, forgiven, and sealed, I don't know about you, but if you said that's who you are, Mo, I'm content right there. That's good enough for me. Hallelujah. I'm okay with that. Paul says, no, we're not stopping there. We got chapter one, but we're going on to the prayer in chapter three because there's more for you to experience. Isn't that incredible? You see, Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, you are a dwelling of God. Whether we know it or not, whether we believe it or not, Paul teaches that the spirit of God lives in us. And now he gets to chapter three and he says, I'm praying you will experience that. I'm praying you will encounter that. He is praying that we will have an encounter with someone. Who is the someone that he's praying we will have the encounter with? Let's go back to verse 17. He is praying that we will be strengthened so that Christ may dwell. Paul was praying that we will have an encounter with Christ. Now, we could go for days here, but let me just summarize. Christ is the God-man. Christ is 100% divine, 100% human, two natures, one person. Now, you got to get this. Jesus Christ is God. That means Jesus is spirit. And that means Jesus is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And that means Jesus is infinite. What that means is, if Jesus is over here ministering to Wayne, he can be over here ministering to me at the same time, and he's not spread too thin. You see, because Jesus is God, he can be fully present with Wayne and fully present with me at the same time. Jesus never gets spread too thin. But now watch this. Not only is Jesus God, he's human. He's one of us. And Jesus has experienced everything that we are tempted with, yet without sin. Hebrews 4 says, we have a high priest who's been tempted like we are, yet without sin. Now, remember, I'm just giving you definitions right now. We're going to pull all this together. You got to file away everything I'm saying here for just in a minute. Jesus has already faced what we faced, and where we fall, he overcomes. Do you and I have trouble loving certain people? Do you know on the eve of his crucifixion, he's in the upper room with his disciples, and he knew Judas was going to betray him? Do you know whose feet Jesus washed on the eve of his crucifixion? All of the apostles, including Judas. Do you and I have trouble forgiving people who have hurt us? Jesus was tempted with that. If my memory serves me correctly, he's on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. Do you and I have trouble doing the will of God when our will clashes with the will of God? I don't know about you, but when it's God's will and my will, I don't want the Frank Sinatra way. I want it my way. But on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus said, nevertheless, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus has already experienced where we're falling short, but he has overcome. He did not succumb to any of those temptations Paul is praying that we will have an encounter with this God man now where does he want this encounter to take place notice he says I am praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts I want you to circle the little preposition in now in is an important word here now I don't want to get too technical I don't want to lose anybody in the weeds here but you know the Bible was not originally written in English the Bible was written in Greek now, do you know what the Greek word for in is? In. And do you know what in in Greek means? In. In is in in English, and in in English means in, and in is in in Greek, and in in Greek means in. Now, in is the opposite of out. So, if I am inside this building, I am not outside this building. You say, Mo, you drove all the way over here early Sunday morning from Murfreesboro to tell us that. Yep. Because that's a big, important word in this prayer. Paul is praying that we will have an encounter with the God-man inside some place rather than outside someplace. Where is this place that he wants us to have this encounter with the God-man? I am praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Hearts is a fascinating word. As we study it through Scripture, I'll bear you, uh, save you all the verses, but sometimes the word heart refers to the way we think. Sometimes heart refers to the way we feel. Sometimes heart refers to the way we act, and sometimes you put it all together, and it refers to the way we think, feel, and act. The writer of Proverbs says, guard your heart out, guard your inner being, because out of it flow all the issues of life. Paul is praying that we would encounter, experience the God-man in our thinking, in our feeling, in our doing, in our whole inner being. Now, what is this encounter that he's praying for? Here's the key word. Paul is praying that we would be strengthened with power by the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. This is the key word, dwell. The word dwell means to settle down and be at home in a place. It's the opposite of visiting. Now, let me explain this to you. As I just alluded to, I just live half hour down the road in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So let's say that I said to you, you know, why don't you come over to my house next weekend and we'll just hang out. And you say, well, that's a great idea. So you show up Friday evening at my house. Now, when you get there, I'm a true Southern gentleman. And so I'm going to say to you, welcome to my house. I want you to feel at home here. My house is your house. And you say, thanks, Mo. You're making me feel real welcome. You go to bed. Early Saturday morning, I'm awakened by a bunch of noise. Hammering, sawing. I go into the living room, and there you are with a hammer in your hand. And you are knocking holes in the wall in my living room. And I say, what in the world are you doing? And you were saying, well, you know, I was just looking at this wall in this living room. I think if we take down this wall, it'll sort of open up this space a little bit more. So I'm going to take down this wall and I'm going to say, put down the hammer. That is not your wall. You say, oh no, it's my wall. You said your house is my house. You said I am supposed to make myself at home here. Well, I want this wall down. And I'm going to say, listen, I'm lying. My house is not your house. That's my wall. I want that wall. If you want to take down a wall, you go to your house and take down a wall. You see, even though I say my house is your house, that's just a euphemism here in the South, means welcome. It's not really your house. Put down the hammer. Do you see the difference between visiting and being at home? You can take down your own wall. That's your house. That's your home. Just don't come to my house and take down my walls. You tracking with me? Here's the prayer. Paul says, Ephesians, you're saved. You're blessed. You're adopted. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And now here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that God would strengthen you within your inner being with power through His Holy Spirit, so that there would come a day in your life, there would come a time in your life when you would say to the indwelling Jesus Christ, "My life is Your life. My house is Your house. Remold me, remake me, remodel me any way you want. If you want to take down a wall, take down a wall. If you want to paint a wall, paint a wall. If you want to build a whole new house, build a whole new house." Jesus, I I want my thoughts to be your thoughts. I want your feelings to be my feelings. I want your actions to be my actions. I want you to take full control. This is your house, your life, your home. Remold me. That's the prayer. That is what Paul was praying the Ephesians would get. And I want you to know that's normal Christian living. That's not for the super saints. And that's not about a list. It's not about a rule. It's about a relationship with the indwelling Jesus Christ. That is a prayer. Now, those are the definitions. Now, let's quickly look at some explanations and applications. You've got to stay with me. Now, here we go. The spirit of Jesus Christ lives in every Christian The Bible teaches the moment you and I come to faith, the moment we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit of Christ comes to live within us. Paul told the Corinthians, he said, test yourself, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. Do you not know the spirit of Christ is in you unless you fail the test? The Bible teaches that when we come to faith, the spirit of Jesus Christ comes to live within us. Every believer. That's the first application. Secondly, the spirit of Jesus Christ in us means that he has penetrated our bodies and has penetrated our spirits. And he is inside of us assuredly as he was in his own body. All right. Now, hang on here. We just said Jesus is the God man because he is God. He is spirit. Now, there are a couple of characteristics about the spiritual dimension. Spirit can penetrate physical dimension. In 1 Corinthians 2.11, Paul said, Who knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man in him? You see, you have a body, but in that body is a spirit because spirit, spirit can penetrate physical matter. So... When the spirit of Jesus is in us, it means the spirit of Christ has penetrated our bodies. But hang on. Not only can spirit penetrate the physical dimension, spirit can penetrate spirit. There's a fascinating story over in Mark chapter 5. Jesus shows up and he is greeted by a demon-possessed man. And Mark says that this man was constantly hollering and screaming and running around naked. He was constantly cutting himself with stones. They would put him in chains and he could break the chains. They couldn't control this man. Jesus cast the demons out of this man. And then it says the man was sitting there. And news of what happened spread, and it said people came to look at him. And in verse 15 of Mark chapter 5, it says the people were astonished because when they saw him, he was in his, watch this, he was in his right mind. Watch that. When the demons were gone, he was in his right mind, which implies when the demons were there, he was in his Wrong mind. Do you see that these evil demonic spirits had not only penetrated his body, they had penetrated his personality. And from the inside out, these demonic spirits were influencing him to think things he would not think on his own. To feel things he would not feel on his own. To do things he would not do. They were influencing him on the inside out. You see, apart from these demons, he wasn't running around yelling and cussing. Apart from these demons, he wasn't cutting himself with stones. Apart from these demons, he couldn't break chains. But these spiritual beings had penetrated his body and penetrated his inner being. And from the inside out, they were influencing him, empowering him to do things that on his own he could not do. That's fascinating. The spirit of Jesus Christ has penetrated our bodies and our inner being so that from the inside out, he can empower us and influence us to do things, feel things, think things that on our own, we would not. That leads to the third explanation, application. The Spirit of Christ is in us to release His life through us. You see, the big question is this. Why, in God's great plan, did He orchestrate the Spirit of Christ to come to live inside of you and live inside of me? Why? To do for us what well, we cannot do on our own. You realize that in the Bible, we have one Bible, but there are two major parts. There's an Old Testament and a New Testament. Those aren't just titles. Testament means covenant. The first part of the Bible we call the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. And here's basically the summary of the Old Testament. God says, you want to live right? Great here are over 600 commands, have at it. Just go obey these commands, just do it. And we think, great, sign me up. We obey number one, we obey number two, we obey number three, we get down to number four. This is exhausting, I can't do it. I'm at number four, you got to, I've got over 600 more to go. I need some help. I can't do it. Hallelujah. That's the second part of the Bible, the New Testament, the new covenant. Jesus comes to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When Jesus comes, he dies on the cross to take care of the penalty problem. But then he comes to live inside of us to take care of the power problem. You see, sin doesn't just cause us a penalty. We're going to be forever separated from God. Sin causes us a power problem. We can't live the way God wants us to live. And so Jesus says, let me just come and indwell you. And from the inside out, we'll take care of this. That's new covenant. That's why Jesus said in John 15, if I abide in you and you abide in me, you're going to bear a lot of fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, Wayne's going to help me, and let me see if I can illustrate this as we land the plane. Wayne, can you come on up here? Now, I know I'm taking my life in my own hands. I've just met Wayne, but I can tell. me, so okay. All right, Wayne. I know we just met, but I like you, buddy. So here's what I want you to do. All right, I got $20 in the bank. If you can forge my signature, you can have it because you could write a check. All right, just sign my signature the way I would sign it. Just go ahead and sign it. Just sign my name. All right. My My $20 are safe, okay? I assure you, this is not my signature. Okay, Wayne, tell you what I'm going to do for you. I really like you. All right. there's my signature. Have at it. Now you can keep that right there. Just sign down at the bottom. Oh, we don't play that game. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you go, baby. (laughs) Much, much better. People at my bank still wouldn't give me my $20, but you are doing much better. But, tell you what, we're going to do. Come over here. I should have picked a righty. He's worse better when I have a righty. Oh, see, you picked
1: the wrong guy. But
0: see, I'm a lefty. Well, then it's work. All right. All right. You watch now. That's my signature. Can I have my hand? Uh, in just a second you can. <laughs> now here's the question. Who wrote it? Who wrote it? Who's holding the up. Who's holding <laughs> Who's holding the pen? Wayne wrote it. Why did he write like me? Because I was influencing him. I was empowering him. But now watch this. Wayne is a stubborn and stiff-necked person. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but when I wanted to go up, Wayne wanted to go down. When I wanted to go left, Wayne wanted to go right. And it was a struggle because... Wayne does not naturally write like I do. And so it was taking a while to get in the groove. But watch this. If we were to stay up here this afternoon and do this for an hour (laughs) or two hours or three hours, I could pretty soon take my hand off Wayne's and he could write like I do. In other words, I would have transformed him into my writing image. See how that works? Thank you. (laughs) Now, here's the deal. I got to land this plane. What I just described is what I've observed that most people do in their Christian life. Here's the deal. It doesn't have to be this way, but it usually is. What I've observed is like the lady that I told you about. She wanted a list. Most of the people, when we get saved, we say, show us a list. We're serious about this. I want to live a good life. I want to love like Jesus loved. I want to pray like Jesus prayed. Just show me the list. And we go off on our own looking at a list, trying to do it. And we fail. We can't do it. Then we go to stage two. Stage two is when we have an example to follow. You see, at stage one, we say, I can't do this. And so here's what we do. We go to WWJD. What would Jesus do? But here's the deal. Here's what we normally do. We put Jesus on a pedestal over here outside and we stare at him. And we say, Jesus, I see how you love. That's how I want to love. I see how you forgave people. That's what I want to do. I see how you obeyed God. That's what I want to do. And we come over here and we're trying to do it. We're just watching him. We're still doing it on our own. The third stage is normal Christian living. When we finally say, even looking at him doesn't produce the power to live that way. Jesus, you've already taken up residence in me. Now I submit to you through faith. Change me. Jesus, I'm hopeless. I can't think like you. I can't act like you. I can't feel like you. I want you to understand, when you and I pray that, I can't think like Jesus. I can't feel like Jesus. I can't act like Jesus. That's not a defeat. That's a victory. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We finally came to the end of ourselves. Lord, if this is going to happen, you've got to pull it off. And we just submit and let his life flow through us i got to land this plane, but here's what I want you to do. Today, tomorrow, early this week, I just want you to pick one area in your life that you know this is a struggle. Not ten, just one. Maybe there's somebody that you know you're supposed to be loving and for the life of you, you can't do it. There's someone you know you're supposed to be forgiving for the life of you. You can't do it. There's a habit you know you're supposed to have given up a long time ago, but you just can't do it. Whatever the area is, you pick that area out. And then you take it over here into the closet and you say, Lord, what's your mind on this? What do you think about this? Lord, you're going to have to love my husband. You're going to have to love my wife. You're going to have to love these kids. You're going to have to forgive these co-workers. You're going to have to forgive my uncle. I can't do it, Lord. I can't do it. But with you abiding in me and I in you, we're going to bear some fruit here. Now, I want you to understand something. It may not happen in one day. It may not happen in two days. You know why? Because in our natural being... We don't think like he does. We don't feel like he does. We don't act like he does. It's going to, like Wayne, he's not riding with me. But you keep going there. You keep going back there. You keep going back there. And day by day, he will transform us into his image. Did you see what Paul said? He said, I pray that Christ will dwell in your hearts. Here's a kick. Through faith. Not through sight. Through faith. Through faith. I can't tell you the number of people who have said to me before, I will forgive that person when I feel like forgiving them. I will love that person when I feel like loving them. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You know what that says? I will change when I change. That's exactly what that means. I will change when I change. No, we say, Jesus, I don't want to love that person, but I know you do. I don't want to forgive that person, but I know you do. I don't want to give up this habit, but I know you do. Now, remember, he's already overcame all of that in his own body. Now, he's trying to bring his own overcoming life into your body and to your life and mine as well. And so we say, Lord, the life you lived in your first century body, I want that in my 21st century body. It is a step of faith day by day.